just to let you know that this is going to be really hard to talk about. It's something I've never actually publicly spoken about before. And when you reached out, I kind of initially flinched and thought, oh my gosh, no. But the more I thought about it, the more I kind of realized that nobody has like a standard family structure. Every family is unique. And if something that I say today resonates with one of your listeners, then I think that's a great thing. Hello and welcome back to Daddy Issues podcast with me and Harrod George Carey. Daddy Issues is a podcast exploring fatherlessness, but more specifically, fatherlessness in successful people. I want to prove that regardless of whatever daddy issues you think you have, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Fatherlessness affects so very many of us, so it's time to start listening to each other's stories and opening up this conversation as one that needs to be recognised, heard and confronted. I am so excited to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Dash Water. Dash Water has been in my life for probably just over a year now. I wanted to start being slightly healthier with my fizzy drink habit. And so I came across Dash Water having been recommended it by a friend and I've never looked back. Dash Water is literally made of water, bubbles and wonky fruit, which otherwise would go to waste. There is no sugar, no sweetener, no artificial flavorings. So it's completely guilt-free as well as nutritious and sustainable. I cannot tell you how refreshing a can of Dash Water peach flavor is on a hot day, not only on its own, but also top tip, it's an excellent mixer. So I'm very excited to let you know that any listeners of Daddy Issues podcast will receive 30% off their whole order if they use the code DADDYISSUES at the checkout at the end. Thank you so much and I hope you enjoy the episode. In today's episode, I am speaking to Liam Hackett. Liam is the founder and CEO of Ditch the Label, one of the largest anti-bullying charities in the world. He has grown Ditch the Label into an organization that helps thousands of people every month. Liam sits on advisory boards across the third sector and government departments and has contributed to various academic and government reports at UK, EU and US level. Working across a multitude of countries and languages, Liam regularly speaks, debates, and contributes articles throughout the press, radio, and TV on a range of issues surrounding bullying, online abuse, equality, discrimination, gender, self-esteem, masculinity, digital technology, and young people. He regularly speaks publicly in places such as the White House, insane oh my god before trump i have to say yeah and i I was actually thinking that i was like that must have been before trump yeah it was (laughs) yeah (laughs) no not anymore no (laughs) the united nations the european parliament and the houses of parliament in addition to live public events with audiences up to twelve thousand. oh my goodness and we're the same age. <laughs> Liam, welcome to Daddy Issues and thank you for coming onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting. It's so exciting. Also, we spoke about this just now off air, but um, we went to the same university. I know. It's strange, isn't it? Because I always feel that the whole universe is designed and... Um, it's funny because I was in uh, San Francisco, I think about nine months ago, mm-hmm. and um, I'm talking to this guy at this uh, networking event, and um, 
He's like, oh, yeah, I went to Sussex University. I can't do an American accent, but just imagine it in an American <laughs> accent. I went to Sussex University. You've probably never heard of it. I'm like, what? I was like, I oh studied at Sussex in San Francisco, 5,000 miles away from home. Um, and then I met another guy who lives literally five minutes away from where I grew up. That is mental. Yeah. You're being like surrounded by Sussex. What are they called? Illuminati. What do we have? Do we have like a word? I don't know. Succisians. I don't like that. No, nor do I. I think let's just leave that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Yeah. Um, but we've come here to talk about, obviously, daddy issues. But before we go into it, can you tell us a bit about Ditch the Label, which is such a freaking cool organisation? And I, I mean, I just can't believe that you've managed. Well, I can believe, obviously, but also can't believe because it's, you're so young how you've managed to grow literally into this absolutely massive, massive charity. Thank you. Well, thanks for calling me young. Um, I just <laughs> you turned are, 29. Well, I don't no, feel young at the moment. <laughs> if you're not young, that means I'm not young. I know, we'll just stay with it, all right? <laughs> yes. um, it's funny, actually, because uh, a young person told me recently that um, you're an adult when you hit 30. So I've got a year left. Oh, my um, God. Right, I've got a year and a half. So Ditch the Label is uh, an organisation that I started in 2012. Um, I originally came up with the idea of it back in 2006. So mm-hmm. I was about 15, 16. And uh, I was bullied myself at school for 10 years. And back in the day of MySpace, I started to talk about my experiences of being bullied online. And um, it was ironic, really, because offline, I didn't really have any friends. But on mm. MySpace, I had like 100,000. Oh, my God. And I'd managed to build like quite a platform for myself. And um, it was just this strange, like, escapism, but just so surreal. But, you know, I would built up this audience and became increasingly vocal about bullying. And I had hundreds of people message me to tell me about their experiences. And so I just realized pretty much straight away that this was a really big issue mm. that affected a lot of people like me. Um, and I wasn't on my own. But also the internet could be a really great way of connecting those people together. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of had the idea of it in the back burner whilst I was at university. And then um, I went through my quarter life crisis. Oh, when, God, yes. Yeah, I had no there. idea what I wanted to do in my life. But I'd always had this idea of Ditch the Label and was always really passionate about what Ditch the Label stood for mm-hmm. and felt that... Sorry, we go closer to the old... Sure, do you want me to start that again? No, no, it's good. There we go. Um, I'd always been really passionate about what Ditch the Label stood for and felt like it could bring a lot of good to the world. So I decided to just go for it. And, um, you know, today we're pretty much the largest anti-bullying charity in the world. Yeah. Um, we work a lot globally mainly in the UK, US. Um, we also ha- we have a presence in every country in the world apart from one. And the reason we don't have a presence there is because they don't have the internet. So, I mean, it's right. fair enough because yeah. uh, we're a digital charity. But yeah, I mean, it all stemmed from my experiences of being bullied. And, you know, over the years, I've learned so much and spoken to thousands of young people about the issues that affect them the most. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's gradually kind of grown from just just being bullying to kind of, talking about issues around like body image and mental health and Mm -hmm. digital literacy and, you know, all of these pressures that young people are under. Mm. Um, In fact, I just wrote a book called Fearless. Yes. um, Which is all about tackling those pressures. Um, And, you know, it's 
the ultimate kind of Bible to becoming your true confident self. Mm -hmm. And um, God, amazing. It's just something I'm so passionate about. And, you know, I just, I feel like we're all here for a reason Mm -hmm. and we've all got a calling and I feel like this is what I'm here to do. This is what I was meant to do. Definitely. And I also think because it's grown so huge, it really is what you're meant to do. Like it, the amount of work you would have put in would have been a lot, but at the same time, it's worked. Yeah. And to me, that means that there's a there's a reason behind that. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It resonates with so many people. The, the world needed it. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, when you look at kind of like anti-bullying, sex terror and kind of initiatives, it's all kind of like bullying with a red circle and a line mm-hmm. through it. And mm-hmm. it's pretty patronizing. Whereas Digital Label is all about empowering people and... The message comes from like strength and solidarity and um, we never patronize or talk down to anybody. And I think that's what resonates with people. People get it straight away. Yeah. Um, apart from some older people who think it's a fashion brand, but I mean, I can live with that. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You could cope with that. <laughs> and quickly, before we move forward and get stuck in and think Ditch the Label will come back anyway, what was it like? Um doing a speech in the White House. Barack wasn't there though, he was on oh, holiday with exactly. Michelle. Oh, God, that's annoying. <laughs> the scary thing was- um, Living his best life. <laughs> yeah, feeling a little bit like an outsider because uh, you know we just started to expand in the US. Mm. And so whilst you know we're pretty well established here and I kind of know everybody in the sector and in the US, it was a whole different ball game. Uh-huh. And I didn't know anybody and I was there on my own. I literally flew over on my own and um, it was a little bit scary, but people, it resonate. It resonates, you know, like when you're kind of, you know, we've done a lot of work around like innovation and research and really understanding the root drivers to bullying behavior. Mm-hmm. And we really do tackle these issues from a completely different perspective. Mm. And when you start to explain it and you factor in the evidence and the research to show that this actually works, people get it. Mm. and a lot of the things that we say are pretty fresh in our sector and our industry and so people generally are really receptive um you do get the occasional organization who kind of gets a little bit competitive um which i think is wrong in the third sector because i think you know we're all here with a similar end goal yeah and our model is to work with as many people and organizations as we can Mm -hmm. um unfortunately it's you can't say the same for everybody yeah um and then I just, I just kind of think the priorities just get a little bit mixed up when it gets to that. Um, but, you know, we've always been really collaborative and I think that kind of, people can tell. Yeah, exactly. Right. Even though we could talk about all of that for a whole podcast, I now want to talk about fatherlessness. Yeah. So what I always like to do is go back to the very beginning, just so you set the scene for the listener and listeners as well as like for yourself to kind of then work from there. So take me back to your childhood, to your roots, where you grew up, what your family situation was like. Yeah. And then we'll go from there. Just to let you know that this is going to be really hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something I've never actually publicly spoken about before. Um, And when you reached out, I kind of initially flinched and thought, oh my gosh, no. But the more I thought about it, the more I kind of realized that actually like no nobody has like a standard family structure every family is unique and um 
you know, if something that I say today resonates with one of your listeners, then I think that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up in a really small town in the north called uh, St. Helens. It's right in the middle of Liverpool and Manchester. Uh, it's famous for um, the rugby team and glass. Yeah, or as you pronounce it in the South, glass. Glass. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's known for. And Johnny Vegas, three things that it's famous for. Glass, Johnny Vegas, and what was the, what was the first Rugby. One? Rugby. Um, they're free. If you've heard of St. Helens, it might be for one of those three reasons. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I grew up in a, a relatively small town. Um, my mum had me when she was 18. Um, and... Uh, my family's pretty small, so um, my mum and dad were together, and my dad's uh, parents were really religious. And uh, when my when they found out my mum fell pregnant, my dad proposed to my mum, and my mum said no um, because she felt it, and it came from his parents, and it just wasn't the right energy. Yeah. Um, they inevitably kind of split up and, um, it was agreed that he would still have a role in my life. Um, and from what I gather from, you know, kind of the things my mum has told me, um, he was kind of in and out of my life. Um, for my first three years, he was in the RAF and was away quite a lot. And, um, at the age of three, he decided with mum that um he didn't really want to have a role in my life anymore and left um and I still had a relationship with my nan and granddad and my auntie who was his sister and um when I was about 11 I'd had a lot of issues with my auntie so she'd um she would plan days out like she'd plan to take me to the zoo or something like that and then just wouldn't show up or she would park outside my mum's house and then go to my grandma's house who lived a few houses away and um it really kind of messed me up as a kid yeah and um very confusing yeah it was and I didn't really know where I stood and uh I think it was about nine or eleven it was one of those and I she'd she'd parked outside the house and gone to my grandma's house and um I went around and I said to her I said look you can't keep doing this to me this really hurts me Mm. and uh you said that yeah oh as like a nine-year-old yeah and then um I wrote her a letter and left it with her and then my granddad called um and said just to let you know you're no longer my grandson um never contact us again so um after that letter that was the last I ever heard from my nan and granddad and my auntie and then um when I was 13 my mum and dad when he left at three they agreed that at 13, we, we'd kind of be in touch and, and see where things were at. And I wrote him a letter and um, he sent a letter back and just said he wasn't interested. Um, when you were 13? Yeah. So 10 years after not seeing him, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I've always had him like the back of my mind, like, I, you know, what if and what, like I have cousins that I don't know and who are a similar age and you know I always wonder and I've written to members of my family in the past and like just not not had a response and so I kind of mm-hmm. gave up and the general impression that I get is like they're not interested at all mm-hmm. um and you know growing up I really struggled with that it was a big part of my identity a lot of my friends had a mum and dad and I just had my mum yeah who was fantastic 
Um, I, I've always had a really small family, so it's literally been my mum, my grandma, my brother. My grandma sadly passed away two weeks ago. Oh, um, no. oh I'm so sorry. God, that's so recent. It's been devastating. Um, she, I always say she was kind of like my sub- substitute second parent. You know, mm. she was great. And um, yeah, it, w- it, it was really hard. Mm. And I think, I think my nan and granddad suspected that I was gay. And um, I've always had a hunch that that was that kind of fueled mm-hmm. their rejection um i found out two years ago that they died and nobody had told me right, yeah. um which was sad because it kind of gave me a bit of closure but then also meant that i would never have my questions answered mm. um and just to go back why do you think that they had a what's brought you to think that they had a hunch that you were gay when you were nine i know my, my dad was homophobic in the right. early 90s. I mean, things change. Hopefully things have changed anyway. Yeah. Um, my nan and granddad were really religious. Mm. Um, and I just kind of had a feeling. Yeah. I didn't know I was gay at that age, but I was very effeminate as yeah. a kid, like yeah. super. And it was pretty... I mean, I'm not into like gender stereotypes or sexuality st- stereotypes or anything like that. But I mean, I think people people could tell. Yeah. And... um Maybe, maybe it wasn't that. Maybe I've just tried to rationalize the yeah, rejection. Yeah, that's what I was and... trying to understand. Like, that's what I was trying to go. Maybe that's just like your, it must be that sort of feeling. I trying to put something on it. I will never know. Yeah. Um, I will never know. And it was really hard. And it was very difficult as a nine-year-old to hear my granddad tell me I wasn't his grandson. And that came from, what did your letter ha- put, entail to your aunt? Just the general crux of it was like it really upsets me when you make plans and don't show up or you know when you park outside the house and you don't come to see me um you know like it really upsets me I think it still affects me now you know like if somebody's late and doesn't tell me that they're going to be late I get really annoyed mm. um I, I don't really ever say anything but it does it's one of my bugbears yeah. and I think it comes from that experience yeah of always being let down and like just kind of sat in the window waiting waiting for her mm. um and so yeah. let's talk of your talk about your dad. Do you know what do you know about your dad? So I know that he worked in the RAF. Um, he now works at Unilever, mm. who are ironically one of our biggest funders. Um, <laughs> really, <laughs> none of my contacts know him. <laughs> um, he, I know he didn't want kids, mm-hmm. um, and you know, kind of like that traditional like masculine. But, you know, maybe like deep down there was part of him suffering and in in pain and like, you know, had his own issues. But to be honest, I don't really know a huge deal. I just don't think that they have ever had an interest. I mean, I'm not difficult to find, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I I really don't know. Have you ever asked or probed or... um... Because for someone just to be like, right, no, you're no longer my grandson. And on top of that, age three, your dad decided not to be in your life. Have you ever just been like, why? Like, why is this? You know, ask that question rather than, because I bet that caused a lot of inner turmoil as oh, a yeah. child. Especially as a child when you actually have so, you really are this kind of innocent sort of person who is so malleable. And it's when you're a teenager that things and, and a young adult, things really catch up with you, I think. Yeah, I, I, I went through that whole process. And, um, you know, I'll be completely honest, when I was kind of like 15, I'd kind of had enough. And, you know, um, 
I had thoughts of suicide and I self-harmed. Um, it was, it wasn't just the rejection from my paternal side of the family, but, um, everybody at school, you know, I didn't really have anybody apart from my mum and grandma who have always been my rocks and my best friends. And, you know, if it wasn't for them, like, I, d I don't think I'd have got through it. Um, and what were you bullied for at school? Uh, you know, attitudes towards my appearance, mm -hmm. my mannerisms, my sexuality. Um, a lot of it was homophobic yeah. before I even knew I was gay. Yeah, yeah. What uh, was that like? Because how, what, yeah, what, how does that feel? Horrible. Yeah. I mean, I used to Google, how can I be straight? How can I be more masculine? Mm -hmm. um, I used to have girlfriends. I hated myself. Mm -hmm. I, um, I used to have quite bad acne and I took sandpaper to my face and sandpapered it. Oh. Um, I used to cut my wrists with a phone cover. Like I just, I used to pull my hair out. Yeah. You know, um, I went for a really, it was really difficult. Yeah. And I think the rejection, you know, I'd had all this rejection. I was the common denominator. Mm. So the reason I was being rejected was because of me. Like there was something inherently wrong with me. Yeah. Um, and I think my mum and grandma really pushed against that and helped me realise gradually over time that no, it wasn't. And I think, you know, the reason I called the book Fearless, for example, is because like, I think we all have our own personal journey onto the route of becoming fearless. Mm -hmm. And I think mine has been difficult. Um, and, you know, kind of like fi me 15 years ago, I wouldn't even talk to you, never mind look at you. Mm -hmm. I had no confidence at all. Mm -hmm. And now like I would say that I'm pretty much fearless. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the book kind of draws on my experiences and stuff like that. And I think we all have our own journeys. And I think my support network of, you know, my mum and grandma, for example, was just so fantastic at helping me do that. But it is hard when you're experiencing rejection at, at such a young age. And it is inevitable that you blame yourself for it. Yeah. But now I know that it, it wasn't it wasn't me. No. How do you turn that around? Like, how did you find that strength to turn that around? Because... Some people might just exist in that reality forever yeah. because you have this narrative that you've, like you say, other people gave you your identity, which wasn't you because that wasn't who you were. You were this person. You are much more now, even though you've been shaped by your experiences. Obviously, we all have. But you were able to like basically be like, I'm not going to listen to people who've squished me my whole life and made me feel like an absolute nobody. Yeah, I'm going to make a massive I'm going to make something of myself and I'm going to do me. And I just, how did you find that? I think um, it was, it's a difficult question to answer because it's just so, it's like a complex web. So I think, layered, yeah. I think first and foremost, you know, the internet for me gave me an opportunity to build a community mm. of people who, um, you know, had been through similar things. Um, that was so important for me and you know some of the first like lgbt plus people i ever met were online um i think secondly as well um putting plans into place to get out of that situation i knew that i had to stay at school until i was 16. um i then went on to a really great college and didn't really have any problems at college at all and already planned to kind of move as far away as possible for university which i did um sussex yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of had that light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, like as an adult kind of looking back and knowing what I now know, I know that the people who made my life hell were not happy people. Yeah. And I remember there's this guy who 
this, oh, there was this one night and um, I was walking to the shop with my friend and um, this guy bullied me at school and um, he was with a group of his friends and two of his friends held my hands while he rammed my head into a car bonnet. Oh my God. And I had to have stitches all here above my eyebrow. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, when he was doing it, I was kind of like, I'm, I'm going to die. Mm. I felt like I was going to die. And I was at peace with it, which is the saddest part. Yeah. Um, How old are you at this point? I was probably about 15. Okay. After that, I didn't leave the house on my own for probably about a year and a half. Mm. Um, I remember a few years ago, I went home and I went for a jog and my mum was like, I'm so proud of you. And I was like, why? <laughs> She's like, because you just wouldn't have left the house like years ago. And I'm like, things have changed. But, yeah. you know, kind of now I look back and I'm like, well, you know, there's a strong chance he was in an abusive household. Mm. Or, you know, I don't know what issues he was going through, but there were some. Um, the guy that outed me at school is now out himself. And, you know, there's always a reason. And I think... Yeah not internalizing that reason as being your problem and something about you you need to change is really important because you know the reality is we can't and shouldn't ever have to change part of our identity the only thing that can change are attitudes and the things people say but also like on my route to becoming fearless um i don't really care so much what people think and say about me anymore yeah and you know everybody has an opinion and not all of them are good and you know I just kind of accept that's how it is. And I yeah. think doing the job that I do and, you know, being so vocal about issues, I get a lot of abuse. Yeah. Um, and it's just caused me to develop a thick skin. But I think for me, um, I always felt so inferior as a kid and like a second class citizen. And I think for me, and I realized this recently in therapy, my survival thing was to try and position myself as being better than other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at an early age, and that's difficult to admit because it's not something that I'm particularly proud of, but you have to understand at 15, that was survival. It's a, it's a coping mechanism. So my MySpace thing, you know, well, you, you know, I'm better than you because I have a hundred thousand followers on MySpace and I get all these brand deals. You're clutching on what is giving you validation because you're getting completely rejected in every other sphere of your life. And, um, you know, I wanted to be a model and like, I think the reason for that was because society puts so much emphasis on how you look. Mm. For me, it kind of felt like, okay, that could make you superior. And I had that complex for a few years and then I kind of moved away to university and I just became so, so self-reflective. And I was like, I don't like this person who I'm projecting. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't like the whole MySpace persona thing. I don't like that. And so I kind of, decided before I started university that I was going to put all of that to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, MySpace had started to die anyway, but um, I kind of stopped using MySpace. Um, and I just kind of reinvented myself where I didn't have to be a superior person mm. um, because I recognize that's not a likable thing. But I do think it helped me survive yeah. those few years yeah. of starting my recovery process. Um, but I think I've always been very driven, you know, my mum, I come from a family of strong, fierce, independent women. My mum went to university when she was in her Mm thirties. Um, she worked so, so hard and I've always kind of taken that drive from her and I've always wanted more for myself than the town that I grew up in. You know, I was a, most of my GCSEs were like A stars, A's, my A levels was like 
an A and two Bs, right. which is so relatively you're real good. High natural high achiever, yeah. So I just put all my effort into my work. Oh, okay. Um, so do you think also being bullied meant that you became more focused on what you could control? I just wanted to get out of there, to be honest. Yeah. And, um, and that was like, I'm going to do well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to be better than the people who are being awful to me. Kind of pushing you to be like, fuck you. Yeah. Like, I'm going to show you what, who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. But I think I just kind of hadn't really quite figured that out at first, which is where the kind of superiority thing came from. Um, but I think, you know, kind of when I went to university, that's when I really found myself mm -hmm. and... I was around amazing people. I was in an amazing environment. I mean, Brighton is a great place to be. Yeah, best. Um, and I kind of emerged and I was like, my main driver, I need to help people. I need to re I need to find a way of supporting people who are going through what I've just been through. Yeah. Because no person should ever have to go through that. And that's what I did. And, you know, um, as I said earlier, like digital label has just resonated with so many people. Mm. Um, and I do feel at a point now where like psychologically I feel grounded. I feel happy. I feel driven. Mm. Like I know that I'm on the right path. Do you think any of that also going back to your dad, that lack of or that rejection also contributed to it? I don't know. I mean, I have a weird relationship with success because most of the time I don't actually consider myself successful. Mm. Um, and I think you, I find that with a lot of my friends who do similar things and have their own businesses and have their own projects and put themselves out there. We don't necessarily always consider ourselves successful, whereas other people do. Mm. And I think the reason behind that is benchmarking. We all do it. And um, I tend to benchmark myself against people who've done way more than me and yeah. so that's my kind of which isn't always healthy no me and my friend were talking about this last night the um not the barrier but the sort of every stage you go up yeah it's become sort of relative again oh, yeah 100 percent. yeah and people like i don't know not i think we all do it in our own different ways and i don't think it's always healthy but sometimes it does help with the drive mm. but um back to your question i think um i don't really know if uh, not having my dad in my life has influenced my drive. Um, and I don't really, like, I feel like, I feel so conflicted about it because part of me is kind of at peace that they're not in my life and, mm. you know, it's just a thing. But then the other part is still curious. Mm. Um, and there is part of me that, you know, I know my nan and granddad um, kind of looked down at my mum and, you know, I was born out of wedlock, so half of the, my paternal family don't even know I was born because it just brought such shame. Right. Part of me is kind of like, well, you know, I'm the most successful out of your bloodline, mm. you know, kind of screw you. Mm. There is an element of that, but I don't really know because it's just such a complex thing. Um, and I think it's difficult because my opinion on it would probably changes over time, depending on other things going on in my life. Yeah. Like at the moment, I don't really have much curiosity about my family, yeah. my paternal side, but sometimes I do. So I don't know. It's it's hard for me to answer. Yeah. And going back to your dad. Yeah. I would love to know. So you he wasn't, because obviously we have not just your dad rejecting you, but his whole family. So that's like, I mean, quadruple whammy slash more. It's terrible. <laughs> <English>. <laughs> but as 
a man and growing up without a dad, but also knowing your dad was alive and your dad had made this choice. And what do you, firstly, what did that feel like growing up? And secondly, what did you feel like you were sort of missing out on? Or what do you feel, do you think, did you ever feel any sort of lack? Yeah, so um, I think it, I always had a curiosity and um, I felt like when I was being bullied, you know, I had a smaller support network than I would have done if I'd have had a dad. Did you think like my dad could come and protect me if he was around or? Not necessarily that. It's just kind of like, what you know, when you're bullied, it's such an isolating and lonely experience mm. and you need as many people around you as possible. I think there was a small space of time when I was about, 15 and started to figure out I was gay um I kind of believed the myths and thought you know maybe I'm gay because I don't have a dad Mm -hmm. and obviously now I know that that's BS and there's no correlation at all um but actually you know what I think there's a lot of positives um so I talk a lot about gender stereotypes and gender norms Mm -hmm. um especially in the book like it is a massive trend um and I feel Growing up in the family that I did, and also as a gay man, um, I don't feel that I'm a a typical, stereotypical guy, or or I feel like I don't really relate to either set of stereotypes. And I would like to live in a world where everybody feels like that, because I think the stereotypes are so restrictive and society is so quick to put people in boxes. Mm. And I actually think it's given me a hidden power of being able to evaluate gender stereotypes on a more um specific level Mm -hmm. um and so you know you kind of realize that gender stereotypes have a role in every aspect of your life Mm -hmm. from your body image and how you look to your career to your relationships your mental health everything stereotypes in every in every even you know race and sexuality yeah but gender, the reason why I'm so interested, I'm interested in all stereotypes, but gender stereotype, you know, you're put into these invisible boxes throughout mm. your life. And the first one you're put into is your gender and then you're color coded as pink or blue. Right. And then certain decisions are made for you by society and you can either accept them or reject them. And um, I, because I didn't have that kind of masculine influence at home, um, I kind of feel like I float between both stereotypes. I don't even know if this makes sense. It's just, I just feel like it's given me an added insight into looking more objectively at gender stereotypes and kind of made me freer to be who I am. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when I was like six, I had a a bunny rabbit that I pushed around in a pram. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure like a (laughs) hyper-masculine guy in the early 90s would have been comfortable with that. Yeah. Whereas I was free to be who I wanted to be. Yeah. This is, if your dad, especially if he was homophobic, you know, yeah. this, this, oh, there's a real silver lining to the fact that he wasn't around because who knows what he would have said to you or acted towards you. I don't know. And I save about 30 quid a year on Father's Day, which is great Although as we well. Add it's another bonus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although less presents, but I mean, you know, it's kind of swings and roundabouts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what do you feel about your dad now? Because I'm guessing he's still alive. Yeah. I feel a lot of things. i I think there's always going to be an element of curiosity. I think there's going to be an element of anger, Mm -hmm. um, an element of understanding um, and feeling sorry for him. Feeling sorry for him, can you expand? Well, I think, you know, kind of knowing my nan and granddad as I did and him growing up and them not hugging him much and showing him much affection and 
being pretty stoic and religious, that can't be a happy environment. Do you think he's a bit, he's a sort of product of his environment? Potentially, yeah. I mean, I don't know, because mm. I don't know him. Right. Um, but I would say, like, overwhelmingly, like, apathy. Mm. I don't really care so much. You know, like, kind of, when I agreed to do this podcast, I kind of thought, oh my God, what if somehow, like, my paternal side of the family, like, follow me on social media or whatever and hear this, what would they think? And I just kind of got to a point where I was like, well, this is my story and I don't really care what they think. Mm. Um, they've not been there for my entire life. Um, I've not, you know, perhaps growing up I needed them, but I've actually done all right. Mm. Um, my mum and grandma did an amazing job and um, maybe they deserve to hear it because I think, you know, as an adult, a similar age to actually older than my dad was, um, I know that how they behaved was not right, mm -hmm. but I have forgiveness, you know, I don't, it doesn't keep me awake at night. Yeah. Um, it doesn't change my life. I think even if I met them now, there's a strong chance we wouldn't have an ongoing relationship because what would we have in common? You and your dad. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought about that quite a bit because mm. with your family, like you grow up around them, you have all those shared experiences like and, nurture. um, yeah, mm. although I've just, it just kind of reminded me, I know that um, for a long time, I had a real struggle um, talking to like older guys. Did you? Older straight guys, yeah. Um, and I have friends who are older straight guys who are dads and I felt really uncomfortable for a long time because I didn't know how to behave. Yeah, and how did you behave? Just like I do like with anyone else, really. But how did you feel inside? Because I like can relate anxious, to this. Hypercritical yeah. of myself. Yeah. Um, really nervous. I just kind of overthought it a lot. Mm -hmm. And when I recognized that, I was like, okay, I need to befriend as many like <laughs> middle-aged straight blokes <laughs> as I possibly can. Um, but that's so good because <laughs> you've clearly just always had this brain which has made you think... Um, rather than run away from a problem, you're a bit like, right, I'm going to face you and I'm going to deal yeah. with you and I'm going to do the best that I can do in this situation, which is amazing that that's like the way that you've somehow managed to sort of think about stuff. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you have to hide from things for a little bit yeah. because it's safe to, like, to heal. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, with things like this, you've got three things you could do. You could become a victim. Mm. You can be apathetic and it will haunt you later on in life, or you can face it and mm. not let it hold you back. And um, I've always been, at least for like my adult life, always been about self-improvement. Mm. And, um, you know, if something gets sent my way and it scares me, whilst I initially would be like, oh my God, no, I will always say yes. So, you know, like kind of doing the Wembley thing you spoke about earlier, 12,000 kids. Initially, I was like, no, I can't do that. And straight away, I was like, yeah, I'll do it because I knew it terrified because, me. Oh my God, I love that. <gasps> and it was great. It was the best thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, it's so true. It's Well, I read recently that you, oh, I won't say the quote, right? But essentially the sort of premise of it is if you're not scared of, if you don't beat fear, then you won't kind of grow. Yeah, yeah. you don't. And I had to do that because, you know, when I graduated university, I don't come from like a well-connected family. Mm. I had no connections. Um, I had to create all that myself and I had to put myself out there yeah. on a global stage and on TV and like all of this stuff. And it is scary at first, but 
you don't get to where you want to be unless you face those fears. Mm. Um, and that's always been my mantra. Fearless. Fearless. That's why I called it fearless. <laughs> yeah. And okay, so I want to talk a tiny bit more about your dad. Just because you, because you obviously know so little because you've literally never, you, do you have any, do you even know what he looks like? Do you have any memory of him? Yeah, it's weird actually. Um, I was joking to, um, it might, I just came from an interview and publicist from Scholastic was, I was like, imagine if this is actually just a setup and they roll in my dad and I'll just be like, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> weirdly, I actually look a lot like my dad. Do um, you? Yeah. What does that feel like? I don't like it so much mm. because um, interestingly, I have some really similar facial expressions mm -hmm. and um, it made me like resent my smile a little bit because it makes me look like him. A very strong similarity. Right. If like a member of that side of the family saw me, they would probably think he looks a lot like him. Right. Um, but I also have features of my mum, but I would say more strongly re resemble my dad. And does that cause some sort of inner conflict other than just like not liking it? Does it make you think sort of, oh my God? Yeah, I mean, I haven't fully understood this as well as I'd like to yet, but in photos where perhaps I'm smiling or like have a certain facial expression where it kind of reminds me of how he looks, mm. um, there's almost like a bit of an element of like body dysmorphia attached to that where I'm kind of like, I look awful in that photo and I don't always realize, understand why. Right. Um, and now I'm starting, I'm on that journey of kind of understanding that a little bit more. And it's because you look like your dad. Yeah. My mum said to me um, over Christmas, she, uh, on the driveway outside the house, there was like three cars and I had to move mine. It was just a nightmare um, <laughs> to get hers out or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I drove past her and she said, oh my God. I went, what? This was like the next day. She said, when you drove past me, I gasped and I had to stop. And I went, why? And she went, you looked exactly like your dad and it took me back oh my god do you feel when you see a picture of your dad and you're like oh my god i can see myself in him so much is there a sadness that there isn't a bond there or do you feel like a love for him that's kind of i'm interested to know if there's any kind of love over this sort of i can't obviously imagine what it's like so I, I look really similar to my mum, and if i saw a picture of her and I, she wasn't in my life i don't know how this would feel like but maybe i would be like oh my god you're my mum do you know what i mean like even though I don't want you as my mum, you're my mum. Like, how does, does there kind of, is this kind of, um, not speaking very well today, but is there this love, some, if there's something like a bond, which you wish you didn't have, which you have? No, I don't feel any of those feelings towards him because he's a complete stranger. Yeah. Um, the only thing I have from him is part of his DNA. Yeah. Um, so you're li literally a no yeah, feeling. I don't, how can you love somebody that you've never met? Yeah. Or have recollection of ever meeting and somebody who hasn't treated you very well. I mean, you know, when my nana and granddad died, I personally think that they should have at least told me. Yeah. Um, and nobody did. And, you know, I think my paternal side of the family haven't treated me very well. So how can I have love for that? Yeah. Um, or many strong feelings. I don't. Um, I don't really, like I said, it doesn't really affect me as an adult. I mean, as a kid, yes, it, it would. Because when you're growing up, your family is a huge part of your identity. But when you start to develop your own identity and figure out who you are in the world, it's less important. Yeah, so true. And I guess I kind of just feel more apathy really towards it. And, um, you know, if 
if we kind of reached out and wanted to meet, I would do it, of course. Um, I'd be terrified, but I would 100% do it. Um, but then there's the whole questions of like, would I then be rejected again because I'm gay? Well, not because I'm gay, but because is he still homophobic? Mm -hmm. Would we have things in common? What would we talk about? Um, I don't know, but I just... It, <sighs> so you still have a... Like, that's, you know, you still have that door that could be opened if he reached out. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that would happen. No. But like I said, you know, I'm not hard to, to find. Yeah. <laughs> or to, well, actually, you are, you are quite hard to reach out to. Oh, really? Sorry. <laughs> I was actually like, how the hell do I find? I tried to find... I was like, if we both went to Sussex, surely we have mutual friends. Not a single mutual friend. Oh, really? Friend. But you don't have a normal Facebook. No. You've got the one that you can, you're like... A, the page. Yeah, a page. I've got Twitter, though. I'm always on Twitter. Oh, see, I'm Insta. so bad at Twitter. I know. I need to get good at tweeting. I love Twitter. But, um, you know what? Like, um, oh, I completely forgot what I was going to say. Oh, door open for dad. Keeping a door open for your dad. Yeah, like I'm not... I think there's always going to be a bit of a curiosity there. But as you grow older, it becomes less important. And um, I just don't really kind of care so much anymore. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's a shame because... I kind of feel sad for him in a way because, you know, like, um, he's missed out. Yeah. And as far as I know, he hasn't gone on to have any other kids. And I can't, I personally can't wait to be a parent. Like, honestly, I can't wait to be a dad. Um, it's something I'd have always wanted. Mm. Ironically, my auntie, the one who used to stand me up all the time, she's a teacher. So she probably knows what Ditch the Label is. Yeah. I don't know whether or not she's made that distinction or not. Um, there's a strong chance my book is now in her school. Yeah. I don't know, but, um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really, um, it's a really confusing thing for me to talk about mm. because I haven't really had them in my adult life. Yeah. You haven't had really any answers or any closure yeah. as to this rejection. And that's it. You know, when my nan and granddad died, like it was sad because it was closure, but then also it was like, I would never have a chance to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. But I think the sadness from closure almost was an element of relief as well. Mm -hmm. um, because I'd always had that, I always like compare it as, you know, when you've got loads of programs running on your computer, you might have something that takes up a small amount of memory, just kind of minimized and it's been there for ages. Yeah. It's still running, the process is still there. Mm. It's not taken up a lot of your memory you're not really noticing it when you're kind of doing other things on your computer but it is still open somewhere mm -hmm. and I think I feel like that with every relationship if a relationship comes to an end and it ends abruptly or mm -hmm. on bad terms mm -hmm. I hate that so much Same. you know I'm the kind of person that if I had an argument with somebody seven years ago I would literally reach out and be like I just thought of this argument mm -hmm. uh, can we resolve it <laughs> because I just don't like having that energy yeah um and I felt like it still was open with my nan and granddad. And of course, with all my other relatives, still open, but mm. tiny bit of memory. Yeah. But it will always be open until the answers are either, you know, the questions are either asked or they die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also... <laughs> it's so, like, gloomy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but do you think, I think, massive part of you being so... As, as in leaving that door open somewhat is because I think you so understand how humans now work. Firstly, through the way that you got treated and then having to overcome that 
but then also the work that you do is speaking to thousands of other people who've been you know bullied or and I'm sure some of them have bullied themselves so that's the thing that you know we're all the same creatures and have these different unless you're sort of psychopathy you actually do have a different brain yeah like, I've met a few of those over the years oh my they're god not good. so have I yeah oh my god we'll compare notes later yeah exactly. <laughs> oh gosh but it's like I feel like you have this huge amount of empathy and understanding because of this work that you do and knowing that we're all you know just the way that they're behaving or have behaved yeah have all these different layers to them that... it's funny because i think when you're an adult you learn a lot about yourself and i mm. have learned that i'm i'm an empath and so i walk into rooms and i pick up on energies really mm. easily and um you know whether that's good energy or bad energy like same. i feel it yeah. and it's exhausting yeah but i'm I've, the same yeah it is exhausting, exhausting isn't it and you kind of you know i could go into a shop and i'll be that you can just feel somebody radiating negative energy and I will absorb that for five minutes. It hurts my head. Yeah. (laughs) And you have to shield yourself from it, but I've always been like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, for me, I'm the, my way of thinking is I love data and I love understanding like the cause and effect of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the world is full of harmful behaviors, but I think nine times out of 10, there's a root cause Mm. and there's hurt. There's something at the center of that. And, I don't know if it's become part of my coping or if it's just something that I'm naturally like inclined to understand, but I love, I think people are fascinating. I love understanding human behavior and our emotions and why people do the things that they do. Mm. Um, and it's always fascinated me. I think if I didn't do the job that I do now, I would be a psychologist. Yeah. And my boyfriend is an educational psychologist. Oh, so, really? Gosh, yeah. what a team. I know. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I have an amazing therapist who I see um, and I, lo- I just love it. I love it's just so interesting for me. And I think when you're talking about issues that really plague our society, like bullying and prejudice and online abuse and, mm. you know, all of these issues that are so dark, mm. there's always a root issue. And I think when you know what those re- root issues are, you can fix those issues. Whereas a lot of approaches are generally kind of like just mopping up the mess without looking at the center of that storm. And I think that's really, really important to do. I literally couldn't agree with you more. I've, I have just been writing something about how, I mean, I wrote, when I was grieving very consciously as a sort of mid, I'm now 28, but when I was like 24, 25, I was writing how all these different manifestations, this is kind of on a tangent, but sort of relates to the same thing. But I'd had anorexia at age 14 and we had to go back to Sri Lanka where we had this car accident and like that was actually probably the first time I was grieving and that was like a, a, a vis- visibility of my grief yeah. and then other things that you know anxiety and all these different things that come from what you think is something else so pe- people are thinking 14 year old girl has body dysmorphia no it had nothing to do with that yeah and I got treated for anorexia I didn't get treated for grief yeah and so it's this kind of it's that exact same thing of these different manifestations and branches off, which feels so far removed from the thing that it really is. Yeah. And getting to that root cause will eventually, well, getting to that root cause is so important because what happens is it eventually catches up with you. Yeah, and a, a lot of resources spent on fixing the impact, which is so important, but we need to fix the, the root. And, you know, kind of 
I'm guessing when you developed your ED, it gave you an element of control and an mm. expression of how you're feeling on the inside and all yeah. this complex web of psychology, yeah. which was a manifestation of everything going on in your life. And, you know, similar for me, I also had um, what you could consider destructive behavior patterns. You know, I kind of had the superiority complex. I was self-harming. I was pulling my hair out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had all these things. I had a complex relationship with food as well. And um, all of that stemmed from these issues that I was going through. And um, I, I completely agree. And, you know, talking about it, it doesn't sound that shocking, but you will be amazed at some of the responses that I've had from people, um, you know, kind of when I'm doing press interviews and I'm talking about the reasons why people bully and how we have to help people who are perpetrating. People are outraged. They're like, oh, you know, are you saying we should be compassionate towards bullies? I'm like, well, firstly, let's not brand people as bullies or victims because it's not who they are. Yeah, and secondly, just, yeah, labeling. Punitive doesn't always work. So, you know, if you've got a kid who is in an abusive household or is dealing with bereavement or um, has got really low self-esteem and they, the destructive behavior that they're doing as a result of that is bullying, yeah. we need to understand what that problem is and help them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how you actually change things and I think more of that needs to be done oh my god I literally all the hairs just stood up on my body because <laughs> I could not agree with you more it's literally that like and it's such a wonderful way to go about because that's it I really think that's the only way you change things is to understand something yeah. to like get on someone's level to get their perspective and then kind of go up from there yeah and I think you know kind of like I love people I love being around people I think People are inherently good, mm. but can be driven to bad things. Um, and I think the experiences that I had growing up, particularly with my dad and my paternal side of the family, I could have very easily turned to hating people and hating the world. Um, and I never really went down that, that path. And I think it just drove me to the complete opposite. And I think on that kind of note, um, I don't resent anything that happened to me growing up. I think it happened for a reason. It was tough, but it brought me to where I am today. And, you know, I just think about how many lives have been saved or changed because of my 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 own experiences. Mm. And I would not change any of it no. at all. Yeah. On that note, I asked the same question to everyone before we end the podcast. I think, you know, well, I hope it's not like a mantra or anything. I <laughs> always get asked this for some reason. It's just I, I get so mad. Oh, my God. It's definitely not a mantra. <laughs> I did this breakfast show in LA once and they were like, right, we want everyone to start with your mantra for today. And I had to literally say it on live television. And I was just like, oh, so British. What is your mantra now that we've spoken about it? I think mine is just generally fearless. Yeah. It changes though. Um, yeah, my mantra changes. I don't even know if I had one, but I think my mantra changes the whole time. I think um, what a trick that I've learned over the years is if I'm really scared about something um i'll use an example so i went to a black tie event on my own which terrifies me because i still have fears of rejection um mm -hmm. and i kind of thought why am i scared i was like okay i'm scared because i don't feel good enough i'm scared that people will be rejected and i'm uh, people will reject me and i'm scared that i've got nothing interesting to say mm -hmm. so my mantra that night was like i am good enough i am interesting and i have good things to say oh i see and i just kept saying it and it really helped really yeah oh my gosh so just like you can make mantras on the spot to help you in that always that is so good yeah you just have to evaluate what is it that's making me feel what i feel right now mm. where does that come from what's the root and then you have to reprogram it because there's a trick with anxiety you know if you're feeling really anxious 
anxiety and excitement are very similar emotions. You can actually trick your brain to believe that you're actually excited and not anxious right. by just literally saying, I feel, I feel excited and changing your language. So if somebody says to you, how do you feel? You say, well, I feel really excited. Oh my gosh. Instead of um, kind of talking about how anxious you are and kind of feeding it. Yeah. It's so, it, honestly, like the, our brains are just so that is clever so interesting yeah i'm going to use that loads because i literally i mean i feel anxious so much yeah not in like a i mean not in a way that cripples me in any way but just very much kind of like inner anxiety over certain things if i've got lots going on or if i'm yeah oh my god right we've run over which is so sad but i'm gonna ask you my last question okay which is if your dad was listening to this episode right now what would you want to say to him? Um, I'd say that I understand and I have complete forgiveness and I can understand, you know, kind of being in a situation that you were in while you made the decisions that you did and it's never too late to fix things and you are completely okay to change your mind. Um, and yeah, I think forgiveness is a big, big I would say is a big keyword. Mm. Thank you so much, Liam. It's been amazing and so inspirational and so many life lessons in that. Thanks. (laughs) Thank God you got a book. I know, I know. (laughs) Available now on iTunes. Yeah, exactly. No, but actually... uh, uh, No, no. So you can get it in Waterstones, Amazon, um, DeRoach Smith. You can get it in most leading bookstores. Mm -hmm, Um, It's mm -hmm. called Fearless. Came out almost two weeks ago. What date is it today? Is it Thursday? Yeah. Came out two weeks ago. Did it? Yeah. <gasps> two weeks celebration. I know. That's Happy cra- book is it in Water- So it's in Waterstones. Yeah, Waterstones have gone really big Ooh. with it. Um, it's really colourful and nice inside as well. I know. Oof. I literally am so happy. About it. I've even been reading it and I wrote it. <laughs> um, it. What I like about it is you can pick it up anywhere and you don't and have to spend that. story. Yeah. <gasps> you don't have to. And do you know what? I was just doing a, an interview um, before this one. And the journalist said, um, do you think books are going out of fashion? And I said, well, no. I think they're actually way back in fashion because, you know, YouTubers are writing them, influencers, role models. And I think for young people and adults too, there's something really nice about having something physically in front of you. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you're reading like self-help or whatever online, the tendency is you just scroll and read what the headers say and then you click off it. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, you're like actually sat there and you're immersed in it and you've got no other distractions. Yeah. You've got no other tabs flashing at you. I just think, you know, books are really back in fashion. Oh God, they are. Yeah. I hope so. I'm big on books. I don't even like those, um, what are they called? The things that have books. On. Oh, Kindles. Yeah, I'm not a fan. I've got one. Sorry, I know. I, everyone's got one. I don't really read, you know. Really? Yeah, I don't Podcaster. really read much. Podcast listener, I hope. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> when I'm cooking I, or in the car, I, I listen to podcasts. Yeah, same. But the books I read are mainly like self-help. Are they? Yeah, but I don't read many. See, I started doing that. No one's knocking, so this is why we can carry on. I've started doing that. But what I find is I read self-help so slowly because... Everything that I learn, if it's like philosophical or if it's like literally self-help or if it's to do with, at the moment I'm reading, um, oh my God, um, what, <laughs> what's it called again? <laughs> I keep getting my mouth. It's obviously left uh, an impression. It's about an FBI, <laughs> it's an FBI ex-hostage negotiator. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Anyway, it will come to me. And everything I read, I want my brain to absorb. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to put you down for a minute. 
And I don't you have, have to. Yeah, because you have to. Otherwise, I'm like taking too much in. You, split the difference. That's what it's called. Split the difference. Oh, okay. You can't have a read form with self-help because you you have to you have to read something, let it go in, and then let it uh, figure out how that relates to you in your life and your psychology. Exactly. You've got to really think about and absorb reprogram. it in your body. Yeah. Yeah. Reprogram. But this is the thing. This is why I'm like, oh, right, 2020. I'm going to get back into fiction. Yeah. Because fiction means I'm like lost in something and I'm in another world and I love it. It's very therapeutic. Where self-help is just like, oh, somewhat work. Yeah. Do you know what I, I mean? I love it though. A, a book that changed my life, um, I read it years ago, it's called The Power of Negative Thinking. Ooh. And um, instead of all the kind of like think positive books, it's actually like, well, here's why people think negatively. And that really casts a light on some of my negative thoughts yeah. and some of the negative things I was vocalizing and where they came from. And that then meant I was able to fix those problems. Um, and had a huge profound impact on my negative thinking. I mm. would say that I, I generally quite positive. I mean, we all have negative times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was a great book. That's so good because it's that interior monologue that you don't even know that you have. Yeah. I got, this is my last thing I'll say, otherwise they'll tell us off. But I recently got my headshots redone for an actor, acting, acting headshots. And the photographer was just like, are you always this hard on yourself? <laughs> and I didn't even realize I was being hard on myself because he was sort of showing me and I'd say maybe something that I didn't even know was me being negative. Yeah. yeah. And it's so weird. It's like you hear other people do you, like if someone who, and then I suddenly realized, oh my God, I said that. And then I said that. And then I said that. And he has Lyme's disease. And he said when he was recovering, um, he, or at least, you know, getting his health back together, one of the things that he said to himself was, he had to change the narrative interior narrative because he had to be the healthiest way that he could be mind and body yeah and he realized that he needed to change the language to himself or his yeah. language his like conversation with himself and so that was a really conscious thing so i think he's really aware of when people are doing that neggy behavior with themselves i think quite often when people vocalize negative beliefs about themselves, it's often to reduce others' expectations around them. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. it kind of taps hand in hand with fear of failure, fear of rejection. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like you kind of, you, we yeah. can all remember those kids coming out of an exam at school saying, oh, that was terrible, but they got an A star and you knew they would get an A star. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe some of it was gloating, I don't know. <laughs> Thank you so much, Liam. This Thank has just you. been amazing. Pleasure. And um, get Liam's book, Fearless. <laughs>you so much for listening to my episode with Liam Hackett oh my god I feel like I've known him forever even though we actually had just met but um we hopefully had you know locked eyes once upon a time at university without knowing it but he is such an inspirational person such an inspirational example to anyone who has to overcome any kind of obstacle and how to channel that into something very positive and very powerful for yourself as well as others because the forgiveness and the perspective that he now holds having gone through everything that he has is I mean it's gives me tingles just thinking about it it's really very special and he's such an amazing person and he made me cry with laughter so um thank you liam you're amazing and we love you and go and buy fearless
If you've been affected at all by anything that's come up in the episode, I advise two places where you can visit. The first is Julia Samuel's website, www.juliasamuel.co.uk. The other place is www.untangle.life, which is for people experiencing grief. It connects you to a like-minded community and experts such as therapists, lawyers, financial coaches, and just helps you make loss a little bit less lonely and overwhelming. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day or night. Thank you.